Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and a meaningful company culture. And I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. So Anne, I am sure you remember the day I came back from a Raleigh Professional Women's Forum meeting, RPWF, and was just raving about the speaker we had, who is now joining us today, which I am so, so thrilled about. So we are joined today by Judge Ashley Parker and... I will say 10 minutes into her presentation, I was just so wowed and was so thrilled when I chatted with her afterwards and told her a little bit about the podcast. And she was interested in talking about the podcast. And here she is joining us today. So I'm just super, super excited about that. So just a little bit about Judge Ashley before she starts telling her story. She is a district court judge in the 10th Judicial District of North Carolina in my county. And prior to being sworn in as a judge in 2017, she was an assistant attorney general at the North Carolina Department of Justice, and prior to that was an assistant district attorney at the Wake County District Attorney's Office. Now, that makes it sound like she has been doing this for a really long time, but let me just say, when she was sworn in in 2017 at the age of 30, she was the youngest African-American female judge in Wake County history. And so this is just an incredibly impressive, accomplished woman that just has so much of her career still sitting in front of her. So it's just, it's so cool. Judge Ashley has a long list of professional and community awards and recognitions that I'm not going to go through because we'll take up the whole podcast. But that's not the only thing that she does. She is also very involved in her community, and she has three kids, a bonus daughter who is 13, and two sons who are two and seven. So this is a woman who knows how to manage a lot of moving pieces. So just one thing I want to say before I turn it over to her is that there were a lot of reasons I was so wowed by her at the RPWF meeting, but the one I really want to mention is it was just so clear how deeply she cares about the people and the community that she serves and she serves with. It was just absolutely palpable. Judge Ashley, welcome to the podcast. We are so excited to have you here, and I want to turn it over to you to talk about your journey and how you got to where you are today and some of the significant moments along the way. Thank you, Sherry and Anne. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for your guests for listening. It's such an honor to be on your podcast, and I just appreciate your kind words. It just made my whole day, so thank you so much (laughs) for that. But my journey starts out just in a small town of Hickory, North Carolina. I was born and raised here in North Carolina. That's all I know. If you can't hear from the accent, it was so funny. I was actually in Denver this past weekend, and this woman was like, you don't have an accent. I was like, "From she's from San Diego. She's like, you don't have an accent. I was like, what? I said, well, sweetheart, I can turn it on and off if I need to. There you you go. (laughs) I can drop it. (laughs) That's right. I can turn it on and off. But anyways, I'm from Hickory, North Carolina, born and raised. And growing up, I grew up with a lot of racism. And I remember being like five years old and my best friend writing me a note. My mom's a mini hoarder. And so she keeps everything from childhood. And so I had this little note that my friend had written. And it said, you can come to my birthday party, but you can't stay the night because you're Black. And I remember that being the first time that I really recognized that my race and my skin color made me different. And so throughout 
school and elementary school and high school and everything, I was constantly reminded of the fact that I was Black, having friends who would say, you can come over, but when my parents get here, you got to go. They didn't want their parents to know that they had a Black friend. My high school, pretty much, it was like five Black people in the whole school, all of that. So I've always known what it felt like to be the only one in a room. And then I remember high school, getting ready to, to graduate, and I wanted to go to med school. And we see how that turned out. <laughs> but <laughs> it didn't. Uh, I was going to med school. I was, I was going to be a doctor. I was going to be a radiologist. That's all I was going to be. And so I learned that some of my white male friends had gotten into Wake Forest University on early admission. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't even know that you could get in on early admission. That was my top choice. It was the only school I wanted to go to. And so I remember telling my favorite English teacher, she's my AP English teacher. I was like, hey, I really want to apply to Wake Forest like they did. What do you think? And it's always important for us to remember the impartation that we can have and the imprint we can have on kids, right? It's so important for our teachers, our parents, our pastors, whoever it is, like whoever has influence over children to remember that what you say really matters. So I'll never forget that she looked at me and said, good luck with that. And my heart was broken, but that was really another time that I was just like, man. And do you think that was race-based as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But one thing about my parents, I was raised in a Christian household. I was taught, listen, what God says you are, you are, you are capable. You are able to do all kinds of things. Do not let that hold you back. And so I applied anyway. And I got in early admission and I walked up to her and I handed her the, the acceptance letter <laughs> Yeah, and didn't even say anything. You know, I was like, I got in and that was it. And I knew, I knew where to put her. I knew where it was. And I decided at that point, you know, when I had that crossroad to pick, I was always going to pick the one that said, I can do this. Go for it. Do not listen to somebody holding you down. And I'm grateful that I did that. And, and so there's so many times in my life that that has taken place. And so I end up going to Wake Forest, take biology first semester. Didn't work out, clearly. <laughs> was it the biology? It was the biology. biology <laughs> didn't, yeah, that was like the best I ever got. At that point, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go be a philosophy major. Now, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, where's law school happening in this? And I'm going to get there. But it was not <laughs> in my purview because I was running from it. So my dad was the first black prosecutor in the western part of the state of North Carolina. And so growing up, I saw what he had to go through. I saw the racism that he dealt with, but I also saw the issues that he had within our own community where black people were saying, you know, you're holding us down, you're holding us back, you're, you're with the man and all that kind of stuff. And he always encouraged me to do whatever I wanted to do and was like, you know, go be a doctor, go be whatever you want to be, and always was really encouraging in that. So for me, when people would ask me, are you going to be a lawyer like your dad when you grow up? I'm like, no, I'm going to be a doctor. He's like, yes, you do. You know, so I was not thinking about being a lawyer. It was not something I ever wanted to do. So then I decided I was going to be a philosophy major. How'd that go over at home? Oh, well, they were fine. I mean, they were just like, whatever. But like, I don't know how to philosophize. It's so great. Like, I don't, I don't know how to do that. I was in that class like, because if you think about the law, it's so black and white. So think about how my brain works. I don't even know what I was thinking. So then I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to be a psychology major. All of this works <laughs> because at Wake Forest, you didn't declare your major until junior year. So I had plenty of time. Thank, thank goodness, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No money was wasted. As long as I graduated four years, they were fine. So I end up as a psychology major. And that was like, that's it, Ashley. That's it. And I was like, okay, great. Everybody always tells me their problems anyway. So like, I'll just help them solve their problems like I'm already doing. But then I realized that Wake Forest is not a clinical psychology program. It is a research psychology program. So I was like, oh, I hate statistics. And <laughs> horrible, but I was stuck at this point. So you can see it was a journey. And I tell kids all the time, I'm like, y'all, 
stay flexible. Don't feel like you have to just stick to one line, do all the things and then figure out what works, right? Well, and it sounds like you might've had some of that because I, I was sort of joking about the high powered dad attorney and telling you, you know, go to med school or whatever. And then you're like, I'm going to be a philosophy major. But it does sound like there was a lot of support at home as well, because I, I think this advice is really important to the young people about how the hell do you know what you're going to be when you're 19? You don't know when you're 19. Like, come on, our brains are still developing. And so I love this idea about the flexibility. And I'm so glad you had the support to really help you do that. Oh my gosh, I'm so grateful. My mom and dad, my mom didn't even go to college. So she was really just like, listen, whatever you want to do, we're here to support you. I'll never forget when I got that letter from Wake Forest and she saw how much it was. She almost had a heart attack immediately. But she said, you know what, God's going to get us through this. And she never once made me feel like, we can't afford this or we can't make this happen. They just really always, always have been my biggest cheerleaders. I've always been right there for me. And I'm so grateful for that. It has really, really propelled me to where I am knowing I've had their consistent support. So junior year, God had a little come to Jesus with me. (laughs) And he said, Ashley, you know, three things about yourself. One, you like to talk. Two, you like to argue. And three, you want to help people. So the best way to do that is by going to law school, like stop running. So I called my dad and I was like, dad, I'm going to law school. And he was like, why would you do that? And I was like, I don't know. I just feel like called to do it. Right. And it's a joke among lawyers that were like, don't be a lawyer. So he was just like, you know, are you sure about that? I was like, yes. I was like, and I want to go to your alma mater, the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And so he was like, okay, you know, I support that or whatever. So, you know, it's just like complete pivot, came out of completely nowhere, whatever. So I take the LSAT, end up getting into Central I'm super excited. And I have decided at this point, I'm going to be a career prosecutor just like my dad. Now I am being just like my dad. (laughs) And I love how you keep having these specific plans and then God kind of comes in and goes, really? Watch me. (laughs) Oh, honey, it gets worse. So then, (laughs) better or worse, I'm not really sure. I've just learned to submit and just to listen. So I end up going to Central. And like I said, I want to be a prosecutor. So my classmates will tell you that, I mean, it was ridiculous. Like I would not even be the criminal defense attorney in a fake mock trial because I was (laughs) like, oh no, I would not defend. That is how serious I was about this, like so tunnel focused. And once again, God laughs at our plans. So I end up graduating from law school, passing the bar, thankfully. And I end up at the Wake County District Attorney's Office. Ironically, the first place my dad worked whenever he got out of law school too. So I'm literally like in his footsteps. Like it's just wild if you think about as a kid being like, (laughs) never going to do that. Oh, wait, here I am. Right, right. Yeah, here I am. And so I started at the DA's office and it's 2012 and I'm like 24. Wow. You were young. So you went straight through and you went straight through fast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I was already kind of young because I have like a late birthday, like late September birthday. So I was already the youngest in my class always anyway. So 24, 25, and I started the DA's office and I'm the only black female out of 45 attorneys at this point. So it's once again, another scenario where I'm like the only one. But the thing about it for me was like, I really was like, okay, look, this is my opportunity because the prosecutor is the most powerful person in the courtroom. They hold the power of the pen. They can dismiss every single case and the judge will never see it. And they also have the opportunity, you know, when we talk about 98% of cases going to plea and not to trial, it's important for pleas to be doled out equally, fairly, and that's all done on the back end. So I really saw a great opportunity for me to really raise equity and try to fight what I believe to be injustices and generally just across not just race, but gender and poverty and all different kinds of issues. Like, I feel like this is my opportunity to do that. And so I was really excited about that and thinking that was going to be my career. And I was just going to sit down and be done with it and retire in, you know, 25, 30 years. And ironically, my dad retired the year that I came in. 
So 2012, he retires as a prosecutor. 2012, I become one. So one day I'm sitting in court, 2013 or something like that. I'm in court and I look out in the audience and the entire audience looks like me. So the entire audience is black. And I look on the bench and I recognize that there's only one black female out of 19 judges in Wake County. And she is serving in family court. So it was like God had said to me, Ashley, I've, you know, I've called you to more. I've called you to serve in that role. And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm good right here. No, thank you. you know? <laughs> uh-uh, no, no, not in my plan. Not in my plan. <laughs> and again, there he comes, right? And again, there he comes. And he had laid it on my heart. And he said, Ashley, I, you know, I've called you to be a judge. And I'm just like, I had never, ever, ever thought that that would be something that I would be doing at all. Once again, never thought I'd be a lawyer, you know? So it's just all of these things I'm just like, never thought. And I'm like, okay. So at that point, I've decided to stop fighting him because why? It's not, it hasn't done me well before. <laughs> delaying, you know, the inevitable. So I just accepted this one. And so I went and found mentors that, and I tell, you know, kids all the time, I'm like, listen, find a mentor that's doing what you want to do, that you respect and that you value, right? And ask them what they think about it. So I went and talked to my mentors and they were like, look, Ash, we think you'd be amazing, but you may be young when you do it and you're going to need more experience. And I'm like, what? You're going to need more experience. And I'm like, but I love it here. And they're like, you need, you need to leave. I was like, oh, my dream job, right? <laughs> so two years out, I end up leaving my dream job and going to the attorney general's office to represent, and I always say, drum roll. The DMV. DMV. You wow. can thank your girl for Real ID. That was my project when I was there. It was to get us Real ID compliant. In law school, I hated civil procedure. Hated it. Was criminal law all day get to the AG's office. Now I'm doing civil law and I absolutely love it. I'm trying cases all over the state. I'm teaching law enforcement officers. I'm arguing in the court of appeals and Supreme court. I mean, I am getting a wealth, wealth of experience out of this and just working with amazing colleagues, working with the DMV was fantastic. They were an amazing client. And I just, I just had a ball. Literally it was my favorite job at that point, which I never would have thought. I'm going to pause you for one second because I'm just noticing this pattern of like, you're so sure about a certain thing and like, you're on your path and I'm going to do this. And you've had a couple of, I don't know, little miracles, little serendipitous moments, whatever kind of placed in your path. And I'm just curious, like, because sometimes I think we as humans can put blinders on like, no, I'm on my path. I've got this thing. But it seems like through power with your connection with God, through your mentor, it just sort of seems like you are able to, even as firm as you were in your beliefs, sort of shift them at certain points. So where does that come from, do you think? Because, you know, Sherry and I talk about this all the time that we get these little whispers, human, like we just do. And sometimes we pay attention and sometimes we don't, but it sounds like it's been serving you. So where did that come from, do you think? I mean, really trusting it time and time again has proven that when I, and it's so much easier when I trust it. When I hear that voice and I follow it, that is the easier path. And if I'm up here spinning my wheels trying to figure out what is my purpose. Yeah. Pushing up up against a wall or something, right? Exactly. I'm pushing myself up against the wall, banging my head, trying to figure out what I need to do. If I sit down, be quiet, be still and listen, I receive that guidance every single time. And not only does it tell me, not only does it give me the whisper of, hey, one day this might happen just to kind of get my mind prepped, right? Because it's, it's not always that you move then, but it's also, it tells you when to move and how to move. And if you really listen to that voice, whether you're a Christian, you believe in the Holy Spirit or whether you believe in meditation and yoga, whatever that is, or mindfulness, whatever that is, be still. If you are confused and you don't know what's going on and you don't know what path to take and you don't know where to go, be still. And that will really guide you if you let it. 
it's so hard sometimes when you're in that moment because it's like, when I'm at a crisis or I'm confused or I don't know what to do. And so it's so counterintuitive to be still, but I so agree with you that that is actually the exact moment that we just need to pause and listen and recenter and whoever, wherever you get your messages from, just sort of be open to that. I want to jump in there as well and just add one thing, which is it also sounds like you had this ability to be able to discern between, no, this really is what I'm being called to do, or this is what I'm being pulled to do, be able to discern that from, no, I'm staying committed to what I want and I'm not going to be pulled off my path because sometimes it's hard to know the difference. So I'm curious how you have been able to make that discernment. So really great point, Anna Sherry. And one thing for me was, and this is what I always encourage somebody. And if you're spinning your wheels, like I said, be still, but find your purpose, find the center for why you do what you do. So you're going to hear my path in a minute of how I became a judge. But even before I get there, just so you know, my purpose is not to be a judge. That's not my purpose. Your girl can lose her election next year and not be one, but it doesn't stop my purpose. My purpose is to help the most amount of people that I can in the period that I've been given. That's it. So at the end of the day, I feel like God says to me, well done, good and faithful servant. You have done what you have done. If I die tomorrow, have I done what I need to do and help the most amount of people that I can? That's what I feel like I've been called to do. So no matter what job that I've been in or whatever opportunity I've had, it hasn't been tied to my title. It's been tied to that purpose, which is helping people constantly. I just feel like I've just always had a servant's heart and that's just always what's been so important to me. So to anybody that is listening, that's just confused. It's like, I just feel like I'm at this job or I'm doing this, I'm doing that. It is about finding your center and your purpose. And then everything else would just revolve around that. I love this so much because it's not tied to your paycheck. It's not tied to your title. This is all about, I have a purpose here on this earth. And right now it's being expressed through being a judge. Maybe that's for a really long time. Maybe there's something else, but as long as you still stay connected to your purpose, you're still like in touch with who you are at your core and why you're on this earth. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing about it is like being a judge is cool. It's great. And that's a great way to help people while I'm at work. But I also love to do motivational speaking. I love to do this and talk to people and tell my story and be honest and transparent about it because I feel like that's also helping people. Ups and my downs, my highs and my lows, I just feel like are so important. It's all of those things that can help somebody, even just one person. Like that's what it's about. So I appreciate and welcome any opportunity to do that. So we took you off the path. Like you were about to start telling us about how then this actually came to be after your fabulous client DMV. <laughs> all right. So I'm at the DMV for three years. Like I said, I'm really enjoying it. And all of a sudden in 2017, February of 2017, my mentor calls me and he's now promoted up to the next level to Superior Court. And he says, Ashley, are you ready for the bench? And I'm like, what? I'm 29. <laughs> now, five years, when you, four and a half at this point, really? And he was like, well, I, you know, I think you're ready. I think you, you've done what you need to do. You know, you've been in the community, which you've been doing anyway, you know, and you've got the experience. Like, I think you'd be ready for that. And that's why I love that you always have those people that encourage you, even when you're like, oh, I don't know. Those people that push you forward are so important. So anyway, so 2017, February, I put my name in the hat, quote unquote. The way it works is all of the attorneys in the county get to vote for the top five names and those names go to the governor and he gets to pick from those names or not. But most of the time he always sticks to those five names, right? Because that's what the lawyers in the county, you know, that's who they're saying they, they trust and all that. And so I got number two in the bar vote. So I was super excited. I was like, man, I really have an opportunity to pull this off and the stars are aligning or whatever. And I'll never forget it was Memorial Day weekend. 
2017, and I got the call from the governor's office that I did not get the appointment. And I was devastated. I was just like, what in the world? This is so embarrassing. I put it on Facebook. People knew what I was doing. I had really, really put myself out there publicly for the first time. And it was really scary to do that. And then even more embarrassing to have it happen. I just remember just curling up in a ball and just crying the entire weekend. It was a really hard weekend. It was a really hard time. And I just remember dealing with God and being like, why did you have me put myself out there if you weren't going to give it to me? Why did you have me do all this? What was the point? I listened to you. I followed you. Why would you embarrass me like this? (laughs) He's probably laughing at me like, did you see my son? Like, did you see what they did to Jesus? So what I say then is what was created for me out of that situation was my life board of directors. So I say to anybody, you must have a life board of directors. These are people that will tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly. They will keep it real with you. They will encourage you, but they will also be like, "Uh, you need to get this together. So my life board of directors came to me and said, listen, Ashley, if you believe that God has called you to this, if you believe that you can make a difference, if you've experienced racism and sexism and you've experienced these things and you know what it feels like. And I had, even across the state, I had been ignored in court and you know, asked if I was somebody's secretary and all these other things. As I was traveling, even as an attorney and growing up as a child and, and, and dealing with people telling you what you can and can't do, you wanted to make sure that people in your courtroom never felt unheard. You wanted to make sure that everybody felt seen. You wanted to make sure that fairness and equity was paramount to everything that you did. If that's the case, then guess what? You're going to do everything in your power to make that happen because it's not about you. It's about the community. I was like, you know what? You're right. If they won't give it to me, I'm going to take it. Same thing with that, you know, with that teacher. You know what? I can show you better than I can tell you. So I decided at that point I was going to run, which is hilarious in 2017 because district court judges do not start running that early. So I'm a year and a half early before 2018 election. And so I started getting my campaign together. I started getting organized. And the day after I launched my campaign, one of the other judges retired completely out of nowhere, completely unexpected, just walks in and was like, I'm out. I'm retiring. And I was like, oh, no, I am I am not putting my name back in the hat. I am not going to let the governor embarrass me again. No, I'm running. That's it. I'm going to let the people decide. Once again, my board directors comes back and humbles me. And they were like, Ashley, once again, if this is about you and your ego, then fine. Don't do that. But if this is about the people, you will put yourself back out there again. And if you don't get it, fine. If you do, whatever. Like the worst they can tell you is no, you will not die. You did not last time. It is a word. I love that you have this group of people that will just tell you how it is. I want to hear the rest of the story, but can you quickly just sort of, I've talked about a personal board of directors as well. How did you cultivate these folks? Where are they like from your industry, outside your industry? Just give us a really high level because I think this idea of personal board of directors is so valuable and so underutilized by people. So just give us a super high level. Absolutely. I mean, these are people that have been with me for years. And then also some new people. I mean, it's across the board, but these are people that I had considered mentors throughout my life. So my tour from the DA's office, the judges that I had talked about earlier from years ago, one of my best friends, it was my, my intern in the DA's office at the time. And is now my best friend was also, you know, it was also on my life board directors. I mean, these are people that are lawyers, these are people that are not, these are people that are judges. I mean, these are people from all walks of life, my parents, so many different people that I respect. I know love me and have my best interests at heart. And there are no haters on my life board of directors. For our listeners, I just really want to underline how incredibly valuable this is. And what we just heard Judge Ashley say is people that were in her industry, out of her industry, people that look like her, people that didn't look like her, people that are related to her, people that aren't related to her. I mean, the whole point to like a public board of directors, like for a company or a corporation or something, is to get that broad, diverse opinion about 
things that are going on. And this is why it is so, you know, maybe it's your girlfriends. We all have something like this. We just may not call it a personal board of directors. What I want to encourage our listeners to do is to be really mindful and to cultivate it. We can't do this world alone. And to have other people really having your back and looking out for your best interests really just helps you. And I think what you're about to tell us is in this case, that they sort of propelled you forward to do something that you thought maybe you weren't going to do. Before we do that, though, I want to just add one more thing to what both Judge Ashley and Anne have said. I think what you said, Judge Ashley, that's so important is no haters. And so sometimes it can be tempting to put somebody on your personal board because you think they're going to bring something valuable to the table. But if people don't actually want what's best for you and unconditionally support you, then you want people who will push back on you. But I love the way you said it. No haters. I love that you brought that point because like you said, sometimes we try to shake it up. We're like, oh no, they're just so blunt with me. It's not about the bluntness. It's the way that you say what you're saying to me. And it's the fact that I know that at the core, you are always going to have my best interest, even if you're telling me something that's hard. But the haters are going to say something to you disrespectful. They're going to say something that makes you feel small. My people never made me feel small, even when they were giving me constructive criticism. And so that is always so important. So like the people that I have always built me up, even if they were telling me something hard. And that is why they're on my life board of directors for sure. Okay. So back to the story of how you came to be on the bench. Yep. So I put my name back in the hat again, because the life board of directors pushed me to do so. And I ended up getting number one in the bar vote, but it wasn't necessarily guaranteed. So I continued to run and campaign at the same time that I was working on this bar vote process. I'm going through the process of the interviews all over again and all of that again. So fast forward to November of 2017, the governor called me and asked me to be the next district court judge for Wake County. And so I always tell that story because I want people to know that you might see somebody for where they are, but you don't know what it took them to get there. And there are a lot of failures that might happen. And you can't just assume, well, oh yeah, it was easy for them. No, it wasn't. But I'm grateful for every door that has closed because every door that has opened has been the right one. So for example, the way it worked is that you finish out the term of the judge whose seat you took. So the first term that I wanted, that I thought I wanted, was for a year and a half. The term I ended up getting was for three years. So I didn't have to run again until 2020. And I say, you know, God shuts doors, you know, and opens up the right one. And that was a door that I didn't even realize was going to be opened up just for me. And the other thing about it is that you hear, oh, yeah, well, you know, she was appointed in 2017. Baby, that was the hardest year <laughs> to start from January all those ups and downs and highs and lows until November. We're talking 11 months of losing weight, of stress, of disappointment, of humility, of people telling me I wasn't good enough, people telling me I wasn't qualified, people telling me I wasn't experienced, all kind of different things to bring me down. And I had to rely on those people who I knew were giving me sound, solid, loving advice and staying focused. Now, now was the time to really be tunnel vision on my purpose, which was to fulfill this goal of being a judge to serve the community. And so that's how I ended up becoming Judge Ashley. I had to run again in 2020. Thankfully, I was unopposed and I'm up again in 2024 as well. And so that's the quick version of of how I became Judge Ashley. Well, so I'm so curious about I mean, this is a lot of focus on your career. And at the beginning, Sherry introduced the fact that you have a bonus daughter and I have a bonus son. Even though I've been divorced from his dad for years, he's still a really big part of my life. So I'm just sort of curious. You've talked a little bit about how your family has been helpful. And I'm just sort of curious what's going on 
in your personal life also that is supportive and, and helping you along this road or or not? Absolutely. So, you know, I'm currently going through a divorce of a 10-year marriage. So my husband had been with me through the entire time and had been supportive of my efforts of being a judge and taking care of the kids and all of that. What ends up happening a lot of times is like, you know, when you're 24 and you get married, one thing, when you're now 35, about to be 36, you realize that maybe you really weren't in alignment like you should have been and that you're just not in the same place as you really should have been. And I think what was really eye-opening for me becoming a judge, because y'all heard my story. I was a criminal prosecutor. I was a civil attorney. What I never did was family, ever. Never done it, wasn't interested in it. Didn't even like the class, okay? But but the way it works is that the chief judge assigns us. So there's 20 of us now, but we are assigned to courtrooms. And so the the judge told me, he was like, I'm going to put you in our family court rotation. So for the first four years, I was in a family court-like rotation where I was handling custody and child support and those type of matters that I had no experience in whatsoever. And one thing I really learned from that experience was, one, our children end up in the criminal justice system because of the breakdown of the family and how important and vital it was to restore families in a sense of, you don't have to be together, but we got to be the team baby. We need to do whatever we need to do for these kids. And I think that that really helped me to develop as a parent not only for my bonus daughter, but for my boys as well, that I want to create for them the most healthy environment for them as well. And also for myself to be the best version of myself. And so relieving myself of anything that was not serving me was important for me to do that. And I feel like my experience as a judge really helped propel me to say, you know what, Ashley, if you're going to teach this out and preach this out to everybody else, you need to be living it too. And I'm a big proponent of that. And so you know, it's definitely led me to say, you know what, Ashley, like you need to put yourself first and your children first, and you need to free yourself of anything that that you don't feel like is serving you. I love that. And I love the focus you also have on not letting the kids be sort of the victims of this. You saw it. And so speaking into how important it is to really put them first, I think is also just a huge lesson. You know, one of the things that is really bubbling up in all the different parts of your story is how everything influences everything else in your life. So you're telling the story about how family court had such a profound impact on you looking at your own family and your own domestic situation. And you also talked about walking into a courtroom and seeing everybody sitting in the courtroom was black and everybody at the front of the courtroom was white. And I know you have used your voice in a lot of different ways to talk about racism and sexism in the legal profession and in the courtroom. And you wrote this incredible article about Black women's hair and what's okay and what's not okay. And so I just would love to hear you talk a little bit more about this intersection of how your professional experiences influence you personally and where your confidence or your comes from to really use your voice to raise up these issues and really shine a light on them? I think for me, the biggest thing was walking in unafraid. If I'm focused on my purpose and I'm not focused on my title, then I say, use the platform that you have for the length of time that you have it. And that's just where I've been with it. 100%. I was like, when I got the seat for three years, I was like, I can only have it for three years. What are you going to do with that? And so I feverishly pushed out articles and said, I'm going to educate 
because sometimes people hear from a judge a little bit more. So I said, what can I do? I can educate. So for example, the first article that I wrote was about sexism because that's something that I had experienced as an attorney. And I felt it was extremely important for us to educate our bar as lawyers that there are women who feel like they are being targeted and treated differently just because of their gender. And we are not above it, basically. And so in that article, it was called Sexism, the Elephant in the Courtroom. And I took examples from women who had experienced terrible things that had taken place to them as attorneys. And one of my examples of where I've experience because I, I was like, I'm at the cross section of sexism, racism, and ageism being young. But I'll never forget, I was in Franklin County when I was with the attorney general's office. And the way it works for calendar call is that you say your name and you say who you represent and you say how long your case is going to take. And so I'm standing there, the judge calls our case and I'm standing there and the other attorney is standing in front of me. And he says, my name is such and such. And the attorney general's office didn't send anybody. And like, you could audibly hear everybody like gasp. It was like a movie, like everybody turns, look at me. Right. And I felt so small because I'm like, this is so disrespectful. But at that point I did what I always do. And I stood up a little bit taller, put my shoulders back and said, good morning, your honor, Ashley Parker Dunson, assistant attorney general here on behalf of the division of motor vehicles. I anticipate this matter taking 30 minutes. I then won the case gave my proposed order, exit stage left, dropped the mic, and drove back to Raleigh. Yes. <laughs> but I remember that experience, and I was like, we have got to get this out to let people know that, and let attorneys know this is unacceptable behavior. And if we're doing that to each other, we will do it to clients, to the public, et cetera, and so forth. And so that was the first article I wrote was about sexism. That was kind of like me putting my pinky toe in. All right. Then the next article was about my crown is professional and it was about natural hair. And the reason that one came about was because when I started out the DA's office, as I said, I was the only black female. Up until this point, my hair had been relaxed. I had a half wig on. My hair was long and straight and looked like everybody else's. It looked like a European hair standard. And I just didn't want to stand out anymore. I was already black and I just didn't want to stand out anymore. I want my hair to be a distraction. I didn't even know what my natural hair looked like. I had no idea. And so when I ended up leaving and going to the attorney general's office, it was much more diverse. And so I saw black women with their hair in locks and their hair in braids and their hair natural and all of this kind of thing. And I'm like, man, these attorneys have been practicing so much longer than me and their hair is just beautiful. Look at them. They're just so confident and bold. And I was like, I want that too. I'm going to feel good about my skin when I wake up in the morning. And so one month after being at the AG's office, I was considered a employee that could only be fired for just cause. So I was no longer at will. I was now a just cause employee. So I was like, they can't fire me for my hair. So I, <laughs> I cut my hair off and big chopped it, dyed it blonde and had my hair like, you know, two inches long or whatever. And it was the first time that I had ever felt so free and so just natural in me and just seeing what my hair texture was. I mean, I know it's like people are looking at like, what in the world? That is such a big deal for black women. It is such a big deal. And it, and it's proven to be a big deal because there's legislation that has to be put in place now for people not to get fired for having their natural hair. So fast forward. So when I got on the bench, the very first thing that was important to me was to wear my hair in a natural state and to wear it in a wash and go. And I have worn my hair natural Every month it has changed to something else. The whole six years that I've been on the bench from braids to cornrows to wigs to sometimes straighten to just out in the afro. I mean, one of the judges looked at me and he said, Ashley, does your hair change with your mood? I said, you better hope not. <laughs> <laughs> you better hope not. Your girl switches it up. But I wanted to encourage other Black attorneys and Black female attorneys to, to embrace their natural hair and to know that it's professional. And now my hair is locked. 
You know what I love so much about this though, is that you're talking about something that's so, as a woman, as a black woman, that is just so personal and yet something you felt you had to hide away. And what popped in my mind is it's a bit like our GLBTQ colleagues who have to sort of be in the closet about things. And it's almost like you had to be in the closet about your hair in some ways. And when you put so much energy into hiding a part of who you are, it is taken away from what you can actually offer and what you can actually give and and be who you are. And so by you sitting on that bench and representing, this is what I feel like I want my hair to be like today. You're allowing, you're facilitating, you're shining the light as Marianne Williamson would say, so that others can do the same. And so I, I, it's beautiful. I think that's amazing. And it is another way to use your voice. It's just, it's not coming out of your mouth, right? It's on the top of your head, but it does speak to the importance of using your voice. And I would say this to all of our listeners, when we use our voices, we make a difference. We make a difference. And, and like you said, it's, it's not just the voice. It's not just the physical. It's your appearance. It's how you carry yourself. It's, so, it's your aura. It's how you treat people. All of those different things can really say a lot and do a lot. And so those are the first two articles. And then George Floyd happened and the courthouse was being, it had fireworks getting shot into it and all kind of stuff. And protests were going on and everything. And at that point, I said, you know what, I'm going to write this it's not my final article, but I was like, here's the trilogy. And I wrote Justice Isn't Always Blind. And that one was about racism in the profession. And that one was about how do we expect the public to believe that this system is fair and impartial when we don't even treat our Black lawyers and our minority lawyers with respect and dignity? My dad, when he was prosecuting Wake County, was told by a judge he could not prosecute a white defendant because he was Black and would not let him try white defendants because my dad was a Black prosecutor. I mean, I had a judge who's he's now a judge now, one of my mentors, who was called the N-word when he was a black prosecutor here in Wake County. All kind of different. I mean, you, know, you can read the article and you can read their, their testimonies in that as well. But I was like, once again, as the profession, it is incumbent upon us to treat our colleagues with respect and dignity. And then hopefully the public can see that that is being exemplified and is a priority for them as well. If we really want to raise the bar on people believing and trusting our system, it's important for us to do the work as attorneys. And so that has been just something that I've really tried to do is educate attorneys and judges on cultural competency, on the importance of diversity. It's not just diversity of race and gender. It is diversity of thought. It is diversity of experiences. All of those things can really make an impact. And the bench needs to represent the people that it's serving because our job is not to judge. Our job is to help. And so it's important for us to, to figure out methods to do that. I love this. And I, we will make sure to link to all three of those articles. You said they're important for your profession, but I actually think it's going to be important for everybody to read them. So we'll for sure link to those articles in the show notes. I think we could keep this conversation going for another hour at least. And probably nobody's going to want to listen to a 90 minute podcast. So one last question before we wrap up is if you could go back in time to Little Ashley, who under no circumstances was ever going to go down the same path as her dad, knowing what you know today, what words of wisdom would you whisper in her ear? That you are enough. You are enough. That's what I would say to anybody that is struggling, anybody that is insecure. You as yourself are enough. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody. It does not matter what degrees you have. It doesn't matter what title you have. It doesn't matter if you're married, if you're not, if you're a mom, if you're not. 
those things don't matter. Whatever cultural aspects are trying to put in front of you and say that you are, you are more than enough just as you are. Push forward with that and keep being great. That is beautiful. Ashley, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such an amazing conversation. This is my first opportunity meeting you. And like Sherry said, I feel like we could just like keep talking for days. And so I really thank you so much for taking the time for our listeners. Just so you know, like (laughs) judge Ashley had to like sneak this in, in between cases. And she's actually on our lunch hour when we're recording. So deep, deep gratitude. Thank you. No, thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate it. Yeah, this has been such a pleasure. And that wraps up our episode for today. We really hope you enjoyed it and would love if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes or post it to your own social media. You can find information in previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. Please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.